Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. We've got another host in for the second podcast in a row and that host is... Liz! Liz is, as you can hear back in the previous episode, she is sadly leaving Stand Up Tragedy, at least for the moment. And because of that, I've invited her to... Well, it was actually Harv, our sound engineer's idea, but we've invited her to select her best performances from the last few years of Stand Up Tragedy. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and a podcast where people talk about sad things where we want people to cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry and we are a safe space to talk about unsafe things so expect some unsafe things coming up. This is basically a content note. I want you to be aware that there may be topics that you might be finding sad or triggering potentially so be aware of those things. Right so I normally host the podcast I created the show and I'm the, the general host of the show. We've got a special guest host coming up in our autumn show, Tragic Autumn, which we've just established is on the 16th of October. On the 16th of October at the Hackney Attic. That is right. And Liz <laughs> is going to be hosting the second act of that night. We're also going to be rec- like basically going through your greatest hits. My greatest hits, yeah. The stuff that you've enjoyed the most from your years with us. And this is kind of like a goodbye uh, present from you to us and a goodbye present from us to you. Yeah. Um, but I hope it won't necessarily always be goodbye. I think you kind of... You never leave, you just sort of like stop for a bit. So we're going to be recording three lots of, of your best ofs and we're gonna, I'm going to edit this all into three separate episodes. So today's episode is a kind of representation, right Liz? Yeah. Of what stand-up tragedy is. Yeah, I found this one, I found, as I've said in the last podcast, it very hard to pick between all, all of my children or all of my favourite performers. So I was trying to figure out another way of doing that and one of them was to do it by... By genres, because stand-up tragedy is such a wealth of different stories that we tell through a bunch of different mediums. And so I tried to do that justice here. So the first pick that I have is one of my favorite poets, who is someone who uh, ran the spoken word section of the PBH Free Fringe. She's an amazing woman who has brought a dynamicism, I think I would say, to the poetry scene. She has a production that she does called Other Voices Spoken Word Cabaret, which is exceptional. And she did a mashup with us. Mashup, is that the right word? Yeah, mashup's mashup right. in Edinburgh that was really excellent. But the first time I really remember seeing Faye perform was when she performed for us the first season in Edinburgh at the Fiddler's Elbow when she just did this beautiful, well, you'll hear it. My young love said to me, my mother won't mind, and my father won't slight you for your lack of kind. And she moved away from me, and this she did say, it will not be love, love, till our wedding day. She moved away from me, and she moved through the fair, and fondly I watched her move here and move there. She moved onward with one 
as a swan in the evening flies over the lake. Last night I dreamt that my love she came in so softly. She came that her feet may not in. Then she laid her hand on me, and this she did say: It will not be long, love, till our wedding day. Thank you very much. Uh, that, by the way, in case you hadn't guessed, was a cover. Um, yeah, I thought that would work. Um, it's not bad, was it? Whoever, whoever wrote that, they did, they did quite well there, didn't they? Um, right, this one, this one's an old one. Um, kind of starts at the end of the story. Watching Unseen. Watch the sky rise blindly, welling over Willen Lake. Birds wheel and flock like the memories mocking me all this sleepless night. My desire for flight binds me as love and fear feed rage until, like the sky, I'm blind. Flesh made cage. Thank you. Another old one, though this doesn't really matter since um, you haven't heard any of these before, so it's fine. Um, This one's called, Where's the Lifeboat? This isn't friendship. It's a worn-out trip, a half-dead hit, a fun long fled. This isn't caring, it's the ghost of sharing pains and trials, secrets we've become. That ain't hope. That's out of scope of nostalgia, that which will not change. That ain't my name. It's an accumulated chain, a sour joke that drags about my heels. This looks like light, but fear of night has overcome our better senses. This sounds like joy, but it's a desperate boy. We look up all the time we're drowning. No, this isn't friendship. It's a battered ship that we won't leave because the shore looks just too far. Thank you. I really like doing stand-up tragedy because, um, for all sorts of reasons, one, it's just lovely. These guys are amazing. But also, I get a chance to indulge melodrama, let's face it. So, um, yeah, more of that. Why not? Um, this time with a methodological bent. Um, let's see how many of you guys know your Mabinogion. Oh, yes. Getting some Welsh mythology down, you guys. Again, a story backwards. This is called Llaithlaw Guffer's Woman. Points to those who get this one. Imagine if she'd said no. Don't give me claws. I was given for loving. I did only as you made me. Imagine her saying it. No, don't kill him. Send us into exile beyond sight. Tell them I died. Imagine if she'd refused. No, let's just 
run away. Make a tale about us, not you and him. Theft is better than murder. Imagine if she'd said, I never dreamed that men could be you. Tender, attentive, bearing their own names, fragrant, unfettered by fate, I will be yours. But first, I need to leave him. Imagine if she'd refused, new-minted, the world glinting, let me touch it with my softness first, then choose my own chains. Imagine her saying it. I will not turn. I'll stay scattered, natural, making love to earth and sunlight. Imagine if she'd said, yes, my son, my own, you'll grow to be a man and just a man, wound round with women's love. Thank you. Um, so, did, did anyone actually recognise that one at all? Vaguely. If you've read The Owl Service by Alan Garner, you're probably, yes, that one. And again, he tells that backwards. It's kind of exciting. Anyway, ask me after. I'll give you a mini, mini sort of mythological lesson. Um, this is the point uh, where I, I, I do plugs, because why not? Um, First, I have a show, of course I have a show. Um, it's on, you'll, you'll see these around the place. Um, not only is this fantastic spoken word cabaret um, with me jabbering at the front and some fantastic uh, cast members, including the mellifluous Mel Jones here, um, and various other people in a revolving cast, people changing every time, including uh, Paula Varjak we have tomorrow, Holly McNish we have later down the line, all sorts of fantastic cast members. Um, not only that, we have open mic, which means we have no idea what's going to happen, which is very exciting. Very exciting indeed. But we, we are not beyond bribery, and we will give you free sweets if you come. Bit of sugar. Why not? Uh, my other tiny plug is this. You saw me reading from it. It's for sale. It's really cheap. Uh, talking of this, I'll read something else from it. Um, I, this, a lot of these come from uh, in April... Uh, there's a challenge for people to write a poem every day of April. It's called Napo Rimo, or National Poetry Writing Month. Um, I Halfway through, when you start getting, trying to get inspiration from anything, look, a ceiling, what could I write about ceilings? I became obsessed with the numbers. So from 10 to 13, it's all about the numbers of the days. And then I thought, I need to stop this and move on. But while I was still on this one, again... See if you can get the reference. This one is number 11. It's called The One the one Left Behind. It was dark then. The others slept, a perfect time for whispers, clutched garments, the scent of secrets. Inescapable desperation moved me, and finally we kissed. He looked at me, unfathomable, the ground dropping from my world. As the night came alive with the sounds of death, the others belated, wept. I was the one who stood with you that night in the garden, not them. It is cold now. The air empty of your breath, still in the caverns of your silence. It was dark then, and, though the cock has crowed, I know the sun will never come for me again. Thank you. Two more for you. One which is blatant melodrama. Blatant, ladies and gentlemen. I try to write a sonnet. You judge if this was successful. It's my first ever sonnet. It's called Lily's Warning Cheese Occurs. I love to watch him. 
Carefully and still, you played out ardour, called me gentle names. I sit up here upon what was our hill and cry the world abroad, my lover's fame. His eyes, his heart, I fain would hold aloft, his clever fingers, soul of his embrace, his well-made arms all graced with hair so soft, his swift and shapely legs, and, oh, his face. But see, his loving guardians, you are hard, whose rough words me from rightful place do cheat. I told you it was cheesy, for I am sworn to take this noble shard and part my false love now from all his meat. And you who saw his act but did not chide, you'd best hope that from me you too can hide. Thank you. I have one more. Stop, stop. I have one more. I've been given, like, a cue. It's very exciting to know how much time I've got, and I think I'm all right. This one is very short, but it has a long and pretentious title. It is also It also has the benefit of being completely true, beginning to end. It is called Wait For It. Thanatos and Eros. Mm, Greek. Double pretentious. Thanatos and Eros. Completely true story. She'd carved a runic cunt on the side of his car on that ancient borderland between codependent territories. The last two were okay, she says, but the first two letters were bastards. Totally unsatisfactory. I reflect on texts for some knee-hugging seconds and suggest that next time she uses twat. Eleven lines, straight to the point. And that's it. Thank you very much. So that was Faye Roberts doing her beautiful dot, dot, dot. And you now know that it was a mixture of singing and uh, poetry. She is a great poet. I I really love what she does. And I love her advocacy for people who are not like me, for for voices that are not just tired white men droning on at us, which is not to say that some tired white men don't have stuff that's interesting to say, but less because so many of us have been allowed to say all the things for all time. So my next pick is um, one of the things that we've done, particularly in some of our earlier seasons, was to have fiction that was performed. And um, one of my top favorite, top favorites, one of my favorites, it's sort of redundant what I just said there. Anyway. Favorites um, makes it sound, it's like just making it more, it's just giving it more gravity, (laughs) gravitas is what I was going to say, gravity, it doesn't give it. This one has a a particular bias for me in that uh, the writer is, um, well, a good friend of mine and I think her work is amazing and this is uh, The House That Jack Built. Hello, good evening. Um, My name's Louise Morris. Um, Yeah, sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, right, well, okay, yeah, as as David said, I am here to um, tell you a story. Um, This is um, the first time I've felt able to tell this story, and um, I thought that stand-up tragedy might be a good platform for it, because it's a story that I'm going to want to take... Um, 
yeah, take take further. Um, essentially, what I, I need to give you a bit of um, background information um, in that um, this is a story that was written by my mother. Uh, my um, mother suffered a severe stroke, and that left her with um, cerebromedulla spinal disconnection, which I don't know. Um, well, it's 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 basically it's locked in syndrome. So she was unable to move, unable to eat. She's completely paralysed. Um, have any of you read um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, my, my mother was able to communicate in a similar way. Um, she has written this story using her eyelids. And, yeah, I would... Um, I'd like to um, take this opportunity to, to read it for you now. Um, thank you. Can I have the stand back? Thanks. Sorry, yeah, bear with me. My mum always loved yellow, so I've backed it onto some jaunty yellow card for you to look at. Um, so this is the house that Jack built by Linda Morris. The bedroom is our den. The carpet is the softest you've ever felt beneath your feet. Years we spent saving up for it. We argued a bit about the colour, but in the end he agreed that beige was less risky than cream. It infuriated him, the idea that we might have something in our house that wasn't perfect. Sometimes I think I can feel it on my toes, even though I couldn't feel it now if you wrapped me up in it. Jack always said a bedroom should be a place you'd be happy to be trapped in if it came to it. You don't want to be sick in a room you hate, he used to say. I don't suppose that he ever imagined that either of us would be this sick. He liked to be prepared for the worst, though. This is a man who insisted on keeping an apocalypse cupboard. That's actually what he called it. It was full of cans of things you wouldn't normally eat. Tinned peaches, rice pudding, sardines... I used to donate some of it secretly when they were collecting for food parcels at the church. I float around the house on the loneliest days like an old lost ship. It's amazing what you can recall when recall is all you've got. It feels more real than reality most of the time. The slide of the bathroom door followed by the clink of the lock, the creak on the fifth stair photo of Louise above the hall table. We have to sell it now. What choice is there? You can go anywhere in your head, but I always end up at home. I can't resist it. The alternative is reality. Mint custard walls and thin pink curtains. Nurses I can't ask to speak more quietly. 
and the towering shadow of the drip beside the bed. My living room is my favourite place in the world, the cherry mantelpiece, hand-carved. It took him years. I didn't think he'd finish it, and then it was my birthday, probably about six years after he started it. I'd gone to my mother's for a few days, and when I got back, there it was, a great roaring fire framed in the surround like a painting. The look on his face. You could tell it was worth all the splinters, those long Sundays locked in the garage. Jack busied himself with the dining room after my stroke. He told me that himself. Not that he thought I could hear him. Talk to her, the doctor said. I could almost hear him rolling his eyes. He was always like that. We had a cat years ago, and he refused to speak to her. What's the point in talking to something that can't understand you? He'd say. I'm here, I screamed over and over again. Please find me. I'm here. But he never did. I thank God for small mercies. I know that room better than I know the back of my own hand. I can visit at any time. He even made the curtains, would you believe? Not many people can say that their husbands made their curtains. I chose the fabric, of course. You can't trust a man with fabric. They only end up copying their mothers. <laughs> he wanted this house to be his. Hours. I used to joke that it'd never be finished, that as soon as we got anywhere near to finishing it, he'd take it all apart and start again. It wasn't all that much of a joke. Louise says he never finished the dining room. She can't bear to go round. It's like watching your childhood crumble, she says. I asked her if she wanted to live there. It's all paid off, you see. But she just wants it gone. I'd like to know that one of us could still live there, but, well, I understand. In the end, the less he believed I could hear him, the more he'd talk. It's like he became desperate, as though he'd run through his can't-talk-to-things-that-don't-understand barrier and come crashing out the other side. Then he was talking more than he would have if he thought I was conscious. He said the house felt enormous without me, like a haunted old mansion, he said, except the ghosts are in my head. I'd will my hand to reach out and touch him, anything to let him know, but nothing would move. He was unravelling, and I was a sodding statue. We understood each other, he once said. And then there was a th silence, as thick as smoke. When he breathed in, it was like he was sucking all the air out of the room. You understood me like no one else could, he said eventually. Now you don't even know I'm here. 
I'd have sold my soul and his to let him know. Inside, I was tearing at my skin to be let out. But on the outside, nothing showed. They didn't tell me for months. Well, they didn't know I was in there, did they? It was an agency nurse who picked up on the blinking. It takes a fresh pair of eyes sometimes. Problem is, this thing's so rare. It was too late by the time they realized. Much too late. The last day I saw him must have been a Sunday because Songs of Praise was on the telly. The telly's on all day. I suppose they think it fills the silence. No one asked me what channel I'd like. He looked worse than I've ever seen him. Didn't look like he'd washed in days. He cried. He actually cried. The first tear in 37 years of marriage, and I couldn't even bloody wipe it for him. And then that was it. He never came back. I visit the house every day from the inside of my head. Only instead of looking out at the street, I look in at our lives. It's perfect when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep, things happen. Dreams are a curse. You can't control them. The wallpaper peels. Plaster falls from the ceiling like dandruff. His mantelpiece is cracked and mildewed. I walk around calling his name and then I wake, hot and frightened, dying to sit up and catch my breath. I lie corpse still and stare at the hospital ceiling, the sinister crack creeping above my head. I was as good as dead when he thought I was a vegetable. He was all on his own, and there was nothing he could do about it. Jack needed to be in control. Always did. I knew before they told me. You couldn't miss something like that. Louise just went silent. She was always the one who was good at talking to me keeping me up to date with going, with, with what was going on. Telling me funny stories about people at work or giving me the latest instalment on the neighbours. The first day she came in and, and didn't say a no, and didn't say a word. I knew it had to be her dad. She just held onto the bedclothes and screwed up her lips. When they realized I was functioning, mentally, I mean, one of the nurses told me Louise wasn't up to it. Tablets, apparently. Massive overdose. They said there was a tally chart. How many he'd taken, what kinds. Only Jack would keep a running total. Only Jack. Now this is all I have, his place in my head, the place my Louise grew up. This is the house that Jack built, and it's all that's left of him now.
And so as you said before, before that clip, it had a bias for you. I mean, I didn't choose it, but it has a bias for me because the writer is also my partner. And that was an interesting sort of moment for Stand Up Tragedy, yeah. the, the one that we've, we've gone for, because we used that story twice. Um, and both times we sort of set it up as if it was real and then the reveal yeah. at the end that it wasn't, which some people have some ethical problems with. Um, it was a mixed, mixed response. Yeah, which I, I mean, I think as we were very clear straight away that it that it was fiction. And I mean, it was because we were trying to set up a character to perform it. Yeah. And, the, you know, you've heard the performance. It was great. But the, I guess it was kind of a victim of its own success in that it was yeah. so convincing that people didn't necessarily pay attention afterwards uh, when I said it clarified that it wasn't. But then I think the second time round, we did, we did, I did manage yeah. to communicate that better. I thought it was clear, but I was also not there for the first one. Like that was a particular reason yeah, why that was I like it. Yeah, yeah. I was temporarily relocated back to the States, but um, I'm glad I got to hear it the second time. But yeah, I think, I think everyone in the room should have known. I think they all responded to it and that's the important thing. Yeah, I mean, I think even the performer, Becky Maltz, who's, who's the performer who did it, who we kind of met through some various people. I basically brought in a performer and my partner, who is a writer, together to do it. Um, and I think she was kind of like a little bit taken so much into the moment, she felt a bit shell-shocked afterwards. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's that's kind of what we sometimes do at Stand Up Tragedy, is leave people a bit shell-shocked <laughs> for a bit. Yay! But that's why we have a sing-along at the end, to try and bring that all together. Right, so that's the second one. What's the third one? So one of the things that, because of uh, our close association with Spark London, which is a great true storytelling night, which everyone should go to as well, we've had so many amazing true storytellers come across our table over the years. And uh, one that we had in our second season in Brixton, Alan Girat. And uh, he is an amazingly tall man, an amazingly big heart. And in our second season in Edinburgh, we saw his uh, one-man show, which is exceptional. But um, this is sort of a part of that, and I think uh, it's the first time I heard it, and it's one of the first times I heard Alan perform, and it's, I, I think you'll enjoy it. So it's uh, 1984 in Perth, Western Australia, and I was 15 years old. And, and you all remember that age, you know. Uh, the, the cool guys would talk about going to parties and, and being drunk and getting with girls. And, and I, w- I would listen in on this and, and compare it to, to where my life was at, which was uh, chess, um, looking at pictures of World War II fighter planes and, uh, and building Lego, you know. Um, I, I had only one friend, Tony Drayton, and uh, he only had one friend too. Um, we, we sort of had this rivalry uh, where we, we, each of us would see who could avoid being the last one picked for any sporting team. Uh, because we went to a very competitive uh, all-boys private grammar school and uh, it was, you know, obviously pretty exclusive. But I came from a totally different world to the rest of that school. Uh, um, uh, I was just part of a single-parent family and uh, back then, you know, there was still a lot of stigma around that and uh, basically mum worked night shift and put every cent she had into our education, my brother, my sister and I. Uh, so as a result, you know, we didn't have much. Uh, we were, had to live in subsidised government housing and the house we had was really, really crappy. Uh, we didn't even own a car and uh, we're on the other side of town, so it was quite a, a bus ride to school each day. Um, so although I didn't fit in, I really liked it there and I desperately wanted to stay at the school, but I knew starting year 10 that this would be my final year because the fees just kept going up and the reality was mum just couldn't afford it anymore. 
But as luck would have it, uh, the Year 10 social was coming up. And uh, this was my final chance to be included, to be one of the guys. And uh, basically our school uh, invited the Year 10s from an all-girls school and to, to come to our school uh, for a, a disco that was going to go for three hours on a Saturday night. Brilliant. And, and basically our classes turned into a boiling pot of testosterone as uh, all the cool guys talked about, you know, the girls they knew from their other school and which ones like them or their mates or which girlfriend they were bringing from another school. I thought, how many guy, girlfriends do these guys have? You know, I realised that I, I needed some serious help. So I talked to the only person I could trust, my friend, Tony Drayton. You see, Tony's father was a reverend, and so that meant Tony had to go to Sunday school, and that's where he met girls. <laughs> In fact, he'd already met a girlfriend there just recently, and she was going to the exact school that was coming to the social. So I thought maybe, maybe Tony could find a girlfriend for me. So for weeks, I just pestered him, you know. Um, you know, I, I asked him, you know, are, are there any other girls in Sunday school, you know, any, any single ones? Um, what, what, what about your girlfriend, you know? Does, does she have an, any friends going to the social... And bingo, she did. There was a friend at, at his girlfriend's school coming to the social. Her name was Nadine. And after a little bit of coaxing, she agreed to meet me at the social. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I... I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what she looked like. And uh, I realised I didn't know how to talk to girls. Uh, I didn't even know how to act cool. You know, the, the other guys, they thought it was hilarious that Tony Drayton, of all people, was setting me up with a girl. But I didn't care because I had a date. And all I had to do was get to the social and I'd be like, one of the guys, this was going to be so cool. Now, obviously, uh, Mum couldn't afford to, to buy me a new outfit, so I thought it would be sensible to just wear the best clothes I had. And, uh, you know, come the big day, or night, as the case may be, I got out my only jacket. It was my favourite. It was brown and had, like, light beige flecks woven through it. And uh, it was polyester lining, so, you know, when you slid into it, it felt really smooth. Now, of course, I had been growing a lot that year, so the... Sleeves were a bit short, but um, I just thought if I adjusted my posture, <laughs> it'd probably look okay. And uh, the, the pants I had, really good quality, you know, and the, and the perfectly ironed creases right down the middle. I had my favourite caramel brown leather shoes. Hush Puppies were the brand. And uh, no laces, no, just zips and Velcro tabs. <laughs> Yeah, I had my favourite big collared cream shirt button up down the centre, you know, pretty sensible. It was actually my older brother's. It was a few years old, but it was still in very good condition. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I realised, you know, I didn't have the outgoing personality for an outrageous hairdo, you know, so I just made sure I just had my normal hairdo and I just made sure that the part was perfectly straight. <laughs> and altogether, I thought I looked pretty smart, you know. Oh, and the only thing that ruined it was we had to take a plate of food. And Mum insisted on me taking something healthy, which was brown bread sandwiches with cheese and Vegemite. Um, If you're not sure, Vegemite's like supercharged Marmite, but, you know. So, anyway, 
uh, the big nights there. Um, oh, buses in our area, they, they finished at uh, about five o'clock and um, we, we didn't own a car, you know, so mum called for a cab and great, it was going to be here in 15 minutes. But it wasn't. Another 15 minutes went by, there's still no cab. Mum called again and half an hour later, still the, the cab hadn't arrived I was just thinking, please, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on. It's got to be here, it's got to be here. Any second now, any second now. Mum called again, and as she's explaining the situation to the, the operator for like the third time, any distant engine noise, I'm looking up and down the street, and I'm thinking, the cab's got to be here soon. But, but we both knew what was going on. We knew what the operator wasn't saying. See, our area, you know, is rough and a couple of neighbours had a reputation for, for jumping out on cab fares and one time a driver even got assaulted. So, you know, the drivers figured, what, what are the actual chances? You know, they, they didn't believe that there was a kid in this area, on this street, going to a grammar school on a Saturday night. So there I am, looking smart, with my plate of cheese and Vegemite sandwiches and my mum walking up to the nearest highway. We figure it's the only option left, right? Uh, we've got to try and hail a cab in the passing traffic, but none of them would stop. You know, the, the sun's gone down, and uh, I, I'm making, like, happy chit-chat with my mum, trying to pretend that everything's OK. Inside my head, there's another conversation going on. What's Nadine going to think? Um, what, what do I say to her? You know, I hope she doesn't think that I, that I stood her up. I mean, this just isn't fair. I mean, why does it always have to be this way? You know, I hate it that we don't have any money. I, I hate it that we're not normal. And I really hate that I have to stand here with these stupid sandwiches. Eventually, a cab stopped. And I got in and I couldn't believe it. You know, it was awesome. I had the whole back seat to myself. It was a little bit bouncy in the middle. And then the ride to the social, you know, was quiet and smooth. And then the driver, he was, he was a nice guy, you know? And he was a good driver too. You could, you could tell uh, just the way he was holding the steering wheel, you know, and he was, he was relaxed and, and in control. And I wondered, what would it be like to have a dad driving? I got to the social and it was nearly two hours late. And the senior master looked at me really weird and asked if I was OK, you know, if it was a problem. I said, no, 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 so, sorry, sir, sorry for being late. No, I'm OK, thanks. I took the sandwiches in, I put them down on the table next to some party pie crumbs and these, these little metal cups that had, like, pink mayonnaise and bits of lettuce in them. And the music it drew me into the main hall and there's Tony. Shit! He... He's dressed like one of the guys from Duran Duran. He, he looks really cool. How did that happen? His girlfriend, she's, she's got this beautiful smile and she, she's dressed like a movie star and he's got his arm around her and, and she's, like, leaning into him and they're laughing and... Man, that must be a great Sunday school. <laughs> I walk straight up to Tony and... Um, he tried to introduce me to his girlfriend and uh, I, I just tried to explain what was, what was going on, you know. It was like, it wasn't my fault, you know. It's just that cab wouldn't come. I mean, you know, you know how it is, you know. I mean, we don't have a car. But where, where's Nadine, you know? Is, is she all right? Do you, do you think I'd still be able to talk to her? You know, is, is she angry at me? Where, where is she? He just points 
I look over and there's a girl walking towards it. That, that must be Nadine. I, I don't know what to say. But I figure I just, I just got to be a man. I, I just got to tell her the truth and it should be okay, right? Oh, hi, my name's Alan. I'm the guy who's supposed to meet you. I'm so... She didn't even look at me. In, in fact, she, she turned away and sort of put her nose up in the air. I, I think she was really annoyed. I, I didn't want to leave it like that. I, I tried to go back to Tony to ask him his advice. You know, he's obviously cool, um, but he was too busy having fun. For the last hour of the social, I watched Nadine and Tony and his girlfriend and a couple other people just sort of dance in a circle and I hovered around the outside a couple of times. I, I just wanted to explain to Nadine, you know, just have that chance. And I just needed to, to get eye contact with her, so I just kept waiting for her to look at me and just give me that permission, you know, give me the little in. But she never did. And I kept trying to understand why she wouldn't talk to me, but I couldn't figure it out. I mean, was, was it because I was late or because I was me? Thanks. Right, so yeah, I mean, Alan's, Alan's performance is, is, a, is again another one that punched me in the gut. I mean, you're, you're choosing very well, I think. Uh, but then I think you did have an embarrassment of riches to choose from in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it must have been very hard. You, know, you've, you said it was really hard and yeah. you had to make a spreadsheet. But I think, yeah, I can imagine it being very, very, very difficult. I'm glad. I mean, I've made some selective tragedies and you really, I've, I've, when I've done it, I've had to really try to make it very specifically themed so that I had criteria for getting rid of people, right? And I guess that's what you've done too. So that was number three. What's your number four for this episode? So one of the things, despite it being stand-up tragedies, we do have comedy. And it's always interesting to see the way that comedians play with that medium, the way that they challenge either they tell true stories, as we've had before, or they do very dark comedy, or, or sometimes quite absurdist comedy or, or alternative comedy. Right, and that's the hardest one to capture on the it's podcast. It's the hardest as possible because there were definitely some favourites of mine, including uh, what we saw in Edinburgh. There were just some amazing performances. Jazz Norris, Michael Brunstrom, Mark Dean Quinn. I don't think any of which will translate to the podcast, right. but highly recommend all of them. And Ben um, Target as well, who and Ben often, Target as well. He doesn't even give us permission to use him yeah. on the podcast, but that's generally okay because it's impossible to capture what he does. But I think this one manages to be very capturable and, and and brilliant. And it was the first time that I'd seen this performer on his own because he is part of an amazing uh, comedy sketch group, the Beta Males. Ah, see, said it British and everything. And he's now a a, a perform a nominee, an award. He was definitely a no- he was a nominee nominee in Edinburgh for the best newcomer award. And I think you'll you'll agree that the story beast is a force to be reckoned with. In Harlan Hair wrote Coat King Rotka having pesky problem and Mensiris Monster defense. Grendel Gongen which crept into the Harlan Dictonicta and struggled the warriors into bed. So, from straight to the Gitland, Rotka call a man a meaty armor. He honeybuds a stranger. Beowulf. Who sounded a lot like Ray Winstone. And so, while everyone good and pissed up, Beowulf lay him like he waiting for the menster. And as in wakey waiting, he lay, who should crept into the harbor but Grendel Conken? And he thinks to himself, hmm, 
Meet the bag and just a glance. What do you think gonna happen? Up streak of Beowulf and Rosanna wants it out! Rosanna! Gilada! Gilada, sir! Gilada! Slaggedy rippity arm of the Grendel! Ah! Meander! Dickheads! And there was much rejoicing in the harlot. Yeah, what do you say, Nick? Not the Nick, the Nick that after that, but the Nick that after that. When everyone gone and pissed up, who should come here and into the hall of a massive troll a grinnel motor who strangled men in the motor warriors of Bale for you like what? We're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> so Bale freedom out the Farici for to find a massive men's in motor. And as he reaten out, he came to a forest, dead he bereft of leaf, and in the forest a set and poil, rippling which weird and currents. And string of beasties. So, Bale stripped a bollocky buff, and he cast out, but to find a maxim mensil motor. And as he swam, what should come here in none of darkness but a massive troll like Grendel motor, who drag him what he had done? He down! He. <laughs> Scream about, was he down? And as everything got black, what should Bale see glinting in the darkness but a giant Kniffen from Warrior Snack Former? And he hung in, and he swung in, and he thundercats who? Bit ahead of. It was amazing. And there was much rejoicing in the harlot. Many in yard and night, you know. A long time later, he's a Slav, you know, he's a Slav. We're not Slav, we don't have him no more because it's racist. But he's a Slav, you know, and a Slav going to the barrow, and in the barrow is gold and joyous. And he's sleepy, scaly, scarred. A Slav don't know that. So he crept into the harbor and he take a toilet cup. And what he fuck think gonna happen? Squat, squat, squat! Big fucking dragon come out! Burn down the house! Whoosh! Burn down the felder! Whoosh! Burn down the shooter! Whoosh! Oh, there is me! Give blades dragon! Whoosh! And Beowulf, he all like, what? I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> but he read an outer. For to face a massive reptile. High on a hill, is it? High on a hill. Stood Wiglaf, Comitatus, Kinfolk, best mate inside the cave of Beowulf. And he see a dreadlord swollen and slashing of a dragon flesh. And he see a dreadlord fall. So. Heft in haft in hand, he ridden out, he swung in, and he heft in, and he... <laughs> Dragon exploded. <laughs> it was amazing. Wiggler, I feel like, I've done that. 
<laughs> he saw the cream. And with his final breath, he came. He, he apologized. <laughs> Even make you feel sad. Seeing his intense. Nick to self-confidence. But you see, the winner takes it all. And by a wolf, a man of much song, good king, honey badger string, a total windstone. Thus, and by a wolf. Imagine what the effect of it. Oh, I do speak English, by the way. <laughs> I'm just uh, come back from Anglo-Saxon times to bamboozle you, like uh, like Hugh Jackman and Kate and Leopold, <laughs> but far more dashing. Niche reference there. Okay, uh, Jean Reno in Les Visiteurs, <laughs> but far more hairy. Uh, no, that's it. That's it. Doctor Who. No. Never. Of hearing uh, Beowulf must have been on a load of burly Anglo-Saxon warriors back in the day. But you know they'd be there in their mead hall, drinking their mead, on their mead benches, which is where you drink mead. And, and then a scop would come in, a ceremonial storyteller, and he'd say, Hey guys, I'm going to tell you a story. It's about a, it's about a load of burly guys in a hall, just like you. And they're in there drinking their mead, just like you, on their mead benches, which is where you drink your mead, just like you. And then a monster happens. No. So they're all like, no. Not, the, not in the hall. That's where we are. So it's very much the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of, but the calls were coming from inside the house. No. Not the house. That's where we live. Um, but actually, uh, just, just on the subject of martyrs, briefly, I'm going to retroactively make this bit the theme. Um, uh, Beowulf, actually, uh, we, don't, we don't know too much about it. We know that the, the text, as we have it, comes from the 9th century. And we can say with some certainty uh, that the author was some monks. Um, and, uh, and the thing about the monks is that, is that they've got a different religion to the one Beowulf has. Beowulf is part of a sort of Anglo-Saxon warrior culture, believes in Votan, believes in well, killing people, will make me happy, will break me better in the afterlife, die with lots of gold, uh, and in battle, hopefully. Uh, but the monks writing it down, they're all Christian. And so they know that Beowulf is going to hell, which is very unfortunate for Beowulf, and, and very unfortunate for the monks, because the thing is, they wrote that story down and they, they think Beowulf's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> so they don't want him, they don't want him to die. And so he's basically, he becomes a kind of a, of a structured storyteller. We know, we know he's great. We know he kills loads of monsters and dragons, but ultimately he's going to hell. And let that be a, a lesson to all, that no matter how cool you are, you, you will go to hell. <laughs> so, so buck up your ideas. Yes. Um, so that's retroactively making that fit the theme. Um, I do actually, but I do have something which is 
which is about the theme tonight. I do actually have a, I've got a favorite martyr. Uh, I, I come from the island of Jersey. That's exactly what it deserved. <laughs> from the island of Jersey. Uh, anyone, anyone know what the patron saint of Jersey is? Come on. Bergerac. <laughs> he died for our sins, you know, John Nettles. <laughs> he died proselytizing in Jersey in the middle of the Royal Square. And we cut him up and burnt him in a wicker man, which is what we do. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the patron saint of Jersey is St. Helier. St. Helier? No? That's our town centre. If you've seen Bergerac, you will be intimately familiar with St. Helier. Um, best thing about Bergerac, while we're on the subject, while we're on the subject of Bergerac, let me just disabuse a few of you. Of dis- I think it's the same for anyone who lives in the Oxfordshire towns where they set midsummer. But if John Nettles goes in a building... Uh, in St. Helier, in Bergerac, he can very easily come out on the other side of the island. Now, none of you who've never been to Jersey and who care, evidently, by the sound of that chair, um, won't be able to notice that. But when I, when I watch Bergerac on, on watch, 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoons, check it out, um, you, uh, you have to, uh, you notice, I just notice, I just notice, no, he's, he's, gone in that, he's gone in that door, he's come on the other side of the island. And so Bergerac becomes a kind of, becomes like a, another episode, it becomes like an episode of Doctor Who. Sort of, where are these doors opening in time? How are they allowing his egress through space? There's some sort of wormhole in that jeweler shop. And he's come out on the other side of the island. Ooh, ooh, Bergerac, you don't care. Um, <laughs> uh, no, the patron saint of Jersey is St. Helier. And St. Helier's, um, St. Helier's uh, crest is a blue shield with two axes on it. And that's a little clue as to precisely how he got martyred. We don't, again, we don't really... He's a, bit of, he's a legendary figure, really. Uh, we, don't, we don't know that much about him. He, uh, he's a 6th century saint from Belgium, uh, weirdly enough. And he came to the islands, and he went out, and he lived on a rock for, for 20 years. And it's rather... I've always found that a rather mysterious choice to make. As a career, instead of, well, you know, so you've gone out and been a comedian. Yeah, I didn't go out and live on a rock for 20 years. Uh, around, surrounded by very cold water. Very cold water. Uh, we don't actually know that much about him. We know he was baptized 150 years before he was born. Uh, if we're to believe both of the medieval hagiographies on his life, he was baptized 150 years before he was born while dying still a young man 200 years later. Uh, which doesn't quite work, maths fans. Um, uh, and St. Helier, St. Helier uh, used to alert the, uh, the primitive peoples of Jersey uh, from pirates coming from the coast. So he'd be out on the rock in the middle of the sea, and he'd, he'd see the pirates coming into land, and he'd light a lantern. And the Jersey people would all be, know to run away, run away from the pirates that were coming to ravage ravage their crops and, and probably people as well. Uh, and, and, but one day, uh, St. Helier was, uh, was caught by the pirates and they beheaded him. Beheaded him with, with a couple of axes, just to be sure. Two axes, not just one axe. Two axes to make sure he was dead. But then he got up. <laughs> and he got up and he carried his head over to, and did, did a little jig 
and, uh, and, and, and preached the gospel and did whatever you know, saints do. And it uh, was generally miraculous. Uh, and uh, yeah, that is the martyrdom of St. Helier. Uh, I've got a story here about, about St. Helier. Because uh, uh, I, I, I seriously don't know how he ended up on that rock. So I, I've, I've guessed somewhat at his motives here for this story. So this is a story called St. Helier's Passions. Every morning, St. Helier would awake with a good, solid scream. It was the same scream every morning. Ah! He would scream. As he remembered where he was and why he was there. On a rock. On top of a slightly larger rock. Off an even bigger rock. Out in the middle of the ocean. He'd been there for years. Below him stormed the raging surf, boiling itself into foam and spray. Occasionally, he'd be woken by the icy cold spray bursting over his body as he lay on the cold, lonesome rock he called his bed. Occasionally, but also for years. But it was all worth it, said Henry, I suppose. Wasn't it? Admittedly, it was a, there was a little screaming to be done every morning, but St. Helier supposed it was only the regular amount of screaming anyone had to do. <laughs> Certainly anyone who lived on it on a rock out in the middle of the ocean. Then again, he'd, he'd never met another one. No, St. Helier decided. It was definitely a proportionate amount of screaming. Totally proportionate to the alternative. <laughs> Girls. Women, ladies, St. Helier muttered, they're all right in moderation. As I'm sure you can guess, the moderate amount for St. Helier was none at all, if he could help it, which he did, but by living on a rock. It was only a few months after saying goodbye to Belgium and society and dry land that St. Helier heard the voices. Soft at first, but then, more terrifyingly, softer still. Voices sad as the surf and softer than foam. Female voices that sang in high, sad songs and warbled through his rock. And then the awful, warm faces that said things like, How are you today, St. Helia? Or, Lovely weather we're having, eh, St. Helia? Or, Would you mind showing me the way to France, St. Helia? I've been awfully silly and got lost. Go away, please, St. Helio would say. So the voices would leave, and St. Helio would have to dash off and plunge himself into the coldest and most uncomfortable pool he could find. I mean, the cheek of it, that these soft and female things should ask him such impertinent questions. And him on his rock, too. He hadn't left dry land and all its fleshy disturbances behind to be spoken to like that. That's what rocks were for. But sooner or later, and it was always too soon for St. Helier, the singing, legless, fish-tailed voices would be back, back to singing him a nice ditty about a fun new way to knit seaweed or telling what the dogfish were really talking about, which was rarely scintillating, only to wave a polite goodbye and wish St. Helier a good evening. Soon after, St. Helier would wake to awful, fleshy screams need to give himself a jolly good plunge. One day, he mumbled, as he made his rock really, really uncomfortable. One day, 
Don't make me a saint for this. Saint, Saint Helia. <laughs> he liked the sound of that. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Um, ooh, a lot of press. Uh, I'm going to leave you on. One, I'm going to leave you on one last thing. Uh, does anyone know all the kings? Anyone? Anyone know all the kings? Anyone know the poem for knowing all the kings? No, you know the poem because Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee. No one. No one else go to public school. <laughs> Seriously, come on, make them hate you. Make them hate you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's very, it's very, it's a very good one. It's a very good one. Uh, it's, uh, it's very good. It get, lets you put history in order. It's very useful. Uh, it goes, it goes. Uh, Willie, Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Neds, Richard, two, Harry's four, five, six. Then who? Edward's four, five, Dick the bad, Harry's twain, and Ned the lad, Mary, Bessie, James the vain, Charlie, Charlie, James again. William and Mary, and a Gloria for George's William and Victoria, yes! Edward Seven next, and then George the Fifth in 1910. Ned the Eighth soon abdicated, then George the Sixth was coronated, after which Elizabeth, and Charlie Three upon her death. Then William and Kate arrive. They reign well while they're alive, but Harry Nine was cleared of all wrongdoing. And then we get Paul and Paul again. And then a Paul and Paul the fourth and five times Paul, Paul six and seven, eight, nine, ten, and Paul eleven. Worst of men who stabbed dogs just because they were there. <laughs> and, and was deposed by Paul, his heir. Next, Charlie four, Chantel, Carice, Bessie three, Paul, Paul, and Reese. Ned the ninth reigned well enough if you'll ignore that war and stuff. <laughs> Henry VIII rose from the dead. Bad news for wifey Seven's head. <laughs> then things start getting rather vague upon the coming of the plague. We know Reese too reigned safe and hunkered down inside his little bunker. One Paul follows next and then. The reigning of the shadow men. Giggling Gog with Leather Jack, the parasite and fighting pack, the queen whose name we dare not speak, the king whose eyes made strong men weak, the empress made of all our fears, the demon monarch reigned for years, the fool, the hierophant, the grey! Trixie Flixie Stephen Ray. <laughs> Last, Arthur comes to green the land. With Britain's darkest hour at hand, he burnt the alien ships on high. Turns to his barrow, there to lie. Then England of its kings did bore. There's one more Paul, and then no more. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for letting me bore you with stories of Jersey. Have a very good night, ladies and gentlemen. Right, so that was the story beast there being his amazing self. So next up, who's who's next? Um, <laughs> next up, who's next? That's next great. I, I, should be, I should be a DJ with this kind of skill. 
<laughs> is music, uh, which is something that we've had a lot of variety in. We managed to get the, for Tragic Horror, we had an entire set by The Mechanisms, which was awesome. But we've had a lot of good range of, of it over the years, um, things that have been funny, things that have been dark, things that have been very different. But one of the things that have been so different, and I think we discovered her in the first season, but I think the the performance of hers that was one of my favorites was when she did in our second season in mm. Edinburgh, and that is Josie Rose Duncan. And she is an amazing performer, an amazing harpist. And it's just, for us to have a Scottish performers in Edinburgh is an amazing thing. And it is, it is tragically heartbreaking to hear her perform. I wish I was where Helen lies For night and day on me she cries For night and day on me she cries I wish I was where Helen lies On fair Kirkconnellies Oh Helen fair, oh Helen chaste Were I with thee I would be blessed Were I with thee I would be blessed Where thou liest slow and at thy rest On fair Kirkconnellies Oh Helen fair beyond compare I'll mark a garland all thy hair I'll mark a garland all thy hair Wrapped in my hair forever near Until the day I die But curse the hair that hatched the thought And curse the hand that fired the shot I curse the hand that fired the shot When in my arms my Helen dropped And died for sake of me in January and it's a title track of a wee EP that I released it's on iTunes and whatnot um, it was about a dream I had about a wee old lady in a house um, who was too scared to go outside and she just spoke to people through writing letters it might not sound that tragic but I felt so sorry for her that I wrote a song and it's called Typewriter 
ribbon is tangled in her typewriter. She cannot write him a letter. <clears throat> the paper is mangled in her typewriter. She prays that today will get better. Do you love? 
She cannot write him a letter. Thank you very much. And that was Josie Rose and Josie Josie Duncan. I, I, I'm confused because she keeps changing her names around at the moment, like in terms of her performance name. But Josie Rose Duncan, as she originally was to us, and I think it's Josie Duncan now. Josie Duncan. Like you said, she blew us away, and she was a discovery in our first Edinburgh, who has remained with us since, and she's she's great. So our next uh, is what's it? Where are we at? We're at our last one, right? So yeah. the next one is our last one. So. This is showing the breadth, this episode, of the of what stand-up tragedy can be. I mean, and I'm glad that you mentioned the absurdist stuff that we can't really yeah. show, because I always feel like when I try to show the, the breadth of stand-up tragedy, I can't quite do it. If people come along to our shows, they should expect some weird, raucous visual stuff that you just don't, don't get on the, the podcast. No, it doesn't come across. Um, so yeah, there's some of that that I haven't actually been able to capture with this like tragic magic uh, and things like that. But the final group that we have is we've had true storytelling and we've had fiction, but I think there's sort of a different category and that's storytelling itself. And we had uh, one performer who we had in the first season, in the second season in London, and I think she's just amazing. But the performance I picked from hers is something she did for us at the Hackney Attic in our second season, and that's Steffi Harrop. Mr. Fox was wearing a smart red coat. Mr. Fox was wearing a new embroidered waistcoat. Mr. Fox had had his whiskers neatly trimmed, and he was actually wearing a little bit of scent as well, because this was Mr. Fox's wedding day. Mr. Fox looked around the room at all his friends and his neighbours gathered together, all of them eating, all of them drinking, all of them smiling. All except Lady Mary, who sat beside Mr. Fox, her face as white as her wedding dress. The bride hadn't eaten a bite of her wedding breakfast. The bite that she hadn't taken stuck in Mr. Fox's mind. Why wouldn't she eat? Why wouldn't she drink? Why was the bride not smiling? After all, this was the happiest day of her life. Mr. Fox leaned over. My dear, he smiled a toothy smile. My dear, can I tempt you to a slice of goose pie? A spoonful of syllabub? A small glass of wine? Lady Mary shook her head. Lady Mary said, I feel a bit strange. I had... The strangest dream last night. And Mr. Fox rose to his feet. Mr. Fox smiled at all his friends, all his neighbours. He said, Lady Mary, my dearest beautiful wife, dreamed a dream last night. Tell us your dream. Lady Mary rose to her feet, her face as white as her wedding dress. And in a very small, 
very soft voice, she told her dream. She said, I dreamed. I dreamed, Mr. Fox, that I was walking in our garden. And then I dreamed that I, I went out through the garden gate and into the woods. And then I was walking through the woods. And then I came to your garden, Mr. Fox. I came to your garden gate. And up above the gate, there were words written. Be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed the gate open, Mr. Fox, and I went into your garden and across the garden and to your front door. And there again, I saw the words written, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed open the door, Mr. Fox, and I went into your house and I went across the hall and up the stairs and I went all the way to the door of your study, Mr. Fox. And there again, the words, be bold, be bold, but not too bold. I pushed open your study door, Mr. Fox. And what did I see? Inside that room, I saw women and girls, Mr. Fox, dozens of them, and every one of them pale and splashed with blood. And every one of them hanging by her hair like a dead crow might hang nailed to a farmer's fence. And then, and then, then, Mr. Fox, I ran out of your study. Then I ran down the stairs. Then I ran across the hall. But as I ran through the window, I saw you, Mr. Fox, coming through the garden. I saw you coming and I saw you carrying something in your arms, something pale, something white, something that struggled. So I hid, Mr. Fox. I hid behind the sofa in your hall and I watched you come through the door. You were carrying a woman in your arms and maybe she had fainted because she wasn't struggling anymore. Her white hand hung limp and as it dragged along the ground I could see that she wore a sparkling diamond ring. You saw the ring too. Mr. Fox, you saw it, and your eye sparkled brighter than the diamond. You tried to tear it off her finger with your teeth, but you were too rough, Mr. Fox, and away came her whole white hand, splashing the floor with blood, and that white hand spun through the air. It landed, Mr. Fox where I lay hidden, it landed in my lap. And then you went upstairs and I put that hand in my pocket and I ran. 
I ran across your garden. I ran through the woods. I ran across my own familiar lawn and home and into bed. And then, and then, Mr. Fox, that's when I woke up. There was a pause, as well there might be. And then, Mr. Fox, he smiled, his toothy smile. He laughed. He turned to Lady Mary and he said, of course, it was just a dream. It is not so. And it was not so. And God forbid that it should be so. It is not so. And it was not so. And God forbid that it should be so. It is not so. It was not so. And God forbid that it should be so. It is not so, and it was not so, and God forbid, and ah, something went arcing across the room, something small, something white, something that glittered as it span through the air, something that landed with a wet plop on Mr. Fox's brand new waistcoat. Mr. Fox looked down, and there it lay, a small white hand wearing a diamond ring and there was Lady Mary on her feet and there was Lady Mary pointing her finger like a fury. It is so and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. It is so and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. It is so and it was so. Here's hand and ring I have to show. A dozen sword blades flashed in the air and Mr. Fox fell dead. Thank you very much. So yeah, so that's we're getting to the, we've got to the end of this episode of Stand Up Tragedy with special guest host and curator Liz. Hey. Now, Tragic Autumn is coming up on the 16th of October at the Hackney Attic. Guest host Liz will be doing her last hurrah. Yeah, tragic schooling. At that night, that'll be the second act, but we've also got some amazing performers who are like comedians and storytellers and spoken word artists to mix up with the kind of academic section although to call it an academic section isn't to do it justice because it's going to be academics talking from the heart and that isn't something we we associate with academics even though we should i'm sure yeah it'll be they'll be all relatively personal i think and things that i mean there's things that drive us to do what we do and i think that'll be this will be a showcase of some of the things that drive us to do what we do and that'll be brilliant and so that's coming up that's the last of the four seasonal shows that we've done for our 2015 London shows we've got Stand Up Tragedy Presents happening on the 19th of November at the Dog Star in Brixton where I'll be doing my solo show What About the Men Mansplaining Masculinity which is 
a sad show about being a man, but it's, it's it's mostly sad, but it's also a bit hopeful, and it's very personal, but it's a bit TED talky. It's kind of a mix of those kind of things uh, into something that makes a lot of sense, I think, but you'll have to come and see it to, to, to judge that for yourself. I'll be wearing a purple fedora and a purple dress, um, and I'll be standing in front of a sketchboard with some inner type and then after me there'll be an amazing show by AJ McKenna called Howl of the Banty which is a, a poetry show about banter culture and trans issues and it's really really fucking good so you should come along to see that and that's pay what you like so you can basically come and see it for free or if you've got some money we really do need it if you can give it to us uh, please because AJ's got to pay for her transport as well and she's not just she doesn't live in London so we really could do with your help on that and the next stand-up tragedy show tragic autumn is five pounds in advance seven pounds on the door and the tickets are available already from the hackney attic so yeah you can follow us on twitter at stand up for tragedy you can like us on facebook or you can friend us on facebook or you can basically go to our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk and find out stuff about us although i guess we're not us anymore by this stage potentially maybe you're maybe you've done your performance and maybe recorded just, that unnecessarily you guys but you're still there in our hearts and anytime you want to come back and join <laughs> us it's great for you to do that so yeah this is the end of standard tragedy of this of this episode of standard tragedy so for now the tragedy is over This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionary.